Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is good to be with you. You can see I've, I've shaved the beard, and uh, my wife is very happy about that. And, um, but it is good to be with you. For those of you who are, who are not aware, I, I have just recently returned from a short sabbatical. You might not think so. I think so. Um, from a short sabbatical where I had spent some time in uh, the African wilderness. I, I I literally spent a month living uh, in a tent under a tree in an unfenced African wildlife context and setting, um, with a very uh, living a very simplistic life, uh, no electricity or TV or internet or phones or that kind of thing, and and. Um, you know, simplicity brings with it, I said last week, this wonderful thing, it, it, it kind of strips away uh, so much, and when things get stripped away, we are reminded, uh, we see again, uh, perhaps things we have failed to see for a long time, and we're reminded of what matters and what's important in life, and, and wilderness gives us that gift to see, to understand to reorganize and reprioritize. And, and so we're busy with a sermon series that I'm calling Worshiping in the Wilderness, to worship in the wilderness. Um, we're talking about wilderness. I, I've done some little daily uh, video devotions. I, I hope some of you are watching them, and I didn't waste my time with it, I, and I hope you're enjoying it and find some value. And the idea behind it is just simply to carry Sunday sermon into the week. So as you do these little devotions, that God's Spirit will continue to speak to you about wilderness and worship and what it means to worship in the wilderness, and that will help you to reflect upon wilderness in your life and your own wilderness experiences, perhaps in the past, perhaps present, perhaps who knows what tomorrow will bring. I encourage you uh, to allow God to, to, to speak to you through His Holy Spirit, because so often we come and we sit here and we might be tempted to think, well, Paul, I, there's no wilderness in my life, um, and I'm actually quite fine, and so this, this series about worshiping in the wilderness is not quite relevant. Really? <laughs> Do you know what tomorrow will bring? Maybe God wants you to hear some things that you're going to need to carry with you in the journey ahead. Or perhaps God wants you to listen, not for your own sake, but for the sake of a school friend or a neighbor or a colleague. And God actually wants to use you to speak life into their wilderness. So we're talking about wilderness, and I was reminded just about something, and I suppose it's part of what we're trying to say in the coming weeks, uh, and starting last week, uh, we were talking, we are having coffee uh, on Friday, and he said something, and in our conversations, and kind of the gist of it was that nothing great, no real growth or glory, can't think of another G, <laughs> no real greatness or development happens in our comfort zone. The miracle always happens outside of the boat on the water. It always happens. It seems to happen. God, we can talk about this in heaven one day, but it always seems to happen outside of our comfort zone. And what wilderness does is wilderness is that zone outside of our comfort zone. And when we learn to worship in that uncomfortable, disorienting season, that place of wilderness, when we learn when we invite God into that space, miraculous things happen. 
transformation happens. And that thing which may be becomes a place and a season of life for me. And so the invitation is to invite God into our wilderness. To not waste our wilderness. And to speak the name of Jesus to quote our song in our wilderness. Okay, so what we're doing is we are uh, looking at different stories, wilderness stories in the Bible. And what we're saying, God, will you use their story to speak into my story? Because we understand wilderness, of course, uh, it's kind of, we, we understand when we speak wilderness, it can mean a physical, geographical place. But we also know when the Bible speaks about wilderness and we encounter wilderness in Scripture, it also is used as a metaphor for those difficult things we go through in life often. And so God gives us stories of others who have been through difficult seasons. And he says, will you, can I, can I introduce you to, and today it's going to be the story of Hagar. And as you look at her story, pray that God's spirit will speak truth into your story and life into your story as you make sense of your own wilderness. The story of Hagar, man, I wish we had all day. I, I'm just telling you right off the bat, this is going to be difficult for me to keep it in half an hour. It is a powerful story. And I pray that God's spirit will really speak to you because maybe some of you need to hear the story of Hagar today. We find her story in the Bible. Uh, it is in what we call the Old Testament, so the first half of the Bible, and in fact, in the very first part of the first half of the Bible, in the book that we call Genesis, and you'll find her story in chapter 16. I'm going to read a few verses for you just to kind of set the scene, and then I'll explain. Genesis 16, 1 to 6. Okay, so here, it's going to be up there. It's going to talk about... Sarai and Abram, but it's Sarah and Abram, same people, don't get confused. So if I say Abram and Sarah, it's, it's the same people, okay? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children, go sleep with my slave, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, uh, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. We're supposed to laugh here, but anyway. I, I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Okay, here's what's going on. Let's unravel the story of Hagar. We're supposed to laugh. Open your arms and now she knows. Okay, something's happening. Something weird's happening. Okay. So we have this couple, Abram and Sarah. Now they're old. You must understand. They, you know, if you're this age, I'm sorry, but it's old. Abram was about 85. Sarah was about 76, right? 
it's old, says the 50-year-old, right? I'm just saying, I'm, I'm headed that way. And God had promised them that they're going to have children. So now they're at this age, they've still got no kids. And so Sarah believes that God has punished her maybe in some way, has, has uh, uh, closed her womb, whatever. Of course, today, we, 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 modern medicine, we understand differently and we know better. Uh, but that's how she saw the situation. And so she thought, right, I've got a brilliant idea. Here's what we're going to do. She goes to her husband. She says, Abram, okay, I've got a great idea. I've got this slave. And her name's Hagar, an Egyptian young lady. So what you do is, Abram, I'm going to give it to you. You sleep with her, and we're going to start a family that way. And anyway, so that's what happens. We must understand, I think, here, first of all, that this is not good news for Hagar. This was not the dream and the hope she had for her own life. First of all, to be a slave, to be someone else's property, and then <clears throat> to go and to be forced into a situation where she really had no choice to sleep with this old man, to have a child, and then knowing exactly what's going to happen, she's forced into a situation of becoming what was known as a a secondary wife, a substitute wife, knowing full well what that means, that I will have no rights, no opportunities in life. What's more, I'm going to give birth to this child, and the custom and tradition was is that the, is that the mistress, so Sarah in this case, will hold the slave as she gives birth. The minute she gives birth, the child is taken and given to the mistress. So I'm going to have to give birth to this child. This child is going to be taken away from me. Wait, it gets worse. Taken away from me. Call this other woman mom, not me. But wait, then this woman is going to give me the child back because I've got to take care of it and be its wet nurse. Can you even begin to imagine the pain of that situation? So for hey God, this is not good news. So this happens, and understandably, she conceives, and understandably, this bad blood begins to develop in this family. The family situation, this household situation sours. It's not a happy home. It's not a happy situation. On the one hand, you've got Hagar, and she rightly so despises Sarah for making her sleep with her husband and then going to take my child away from me, and, and so I, I'm not happy with you. She despises her. On the other hand, you've got Sarah, who now, now she's the older woman, and here's this younger woman who's now slept with my husband, and she's pregnant, and I'm and can have kids, and I don't have kids. And so you have all this insecurity and this jealousy that begins to build in her, and the situation is becoming toxic and bad blood, and it's not a happy home at all. And she begins to mistreat Hagar. Sarah goes to Abraham. She says, Abraham, what were you thinking? This is the worst idea you've ever had. You terrible husband. How could you sleep with her? How could you do this? Abraham in not, shows no great leadership of, of any kind, to be honest. He, he kind of just like, you know, throws his hands up. I, I imagine it's like, okay, well, you know, do whatever you want. He doesn't try and offer help or guidance or in any way. Or to, he just, you know, this is do what you want. And so we read in the text there, it says, and so she began to mistreat, treat harshly 
Hagar. And for you Bible students, this, this is an interesting Bible moment here because you meant to note this word to treat harshly because you meant to make the connection with what happened to the Israelites in Egypt when, when Pharaoh treated them harshly. It's the same word used. So it's actually beautifully written in a way we meant to see here in this situation, we have an Israelite that treats harshly an Egyptian slave. And later we will read of an Egyptian king treating harshly Egyptian. Um, Israel slaves. Interesting little moment there that we mean to take note of. I suppose a side little comment is I think part of what we mean to see when we make that, connect, that connection is our human tendency to, when we have power, to, uh, to abuse that and to oppress. And so here, right at the beginning of the Bible, you'll come to see this theme of oppression and abuse runs right throughout Scripture. Where those who have mistreats those who have not, those who have position treats badly those who have no standing in society. And what we are meant to consider and reflect upon is that as the church of Jesus, we are meant to stand in that gap. We are meant to take the message of the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus Christ, into situations of oppression and speak about the kingdom of God and speak life. We're meant to notice moments of oppression and abuse and be the church of Christ in those situations. Okay, that's completely got nothing to do with anything. Side note. Anyway, so, so this is what's happening. Now, Hagar can't handle it anymore. She's being harshly treated. Situation is not good. And she decides, I'm going to fix the situation. And so she, I, one can understand, she's tempted to say, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to fix this. This is not working for me. I've got to run away. I've got to make a plan. And so we have this moment in the story where Hagar now runs away. And she finds herself at this spring in the wilderness. And this beautiful encounter happens at this well, this spring, this oasis in the wilderness. And we're going to read about it now. But first I want to show you a little map. And old school, I've got a laser pointer, which I'm going to use now. I want to show you this little map, so just so that you have an idea. Hopefully you can see. So here's Israel on the side here. There's Jerusalem. Now, they lived in Hebron. Now, Hebron is in the south here just south of Jerusalem, and she's from Egypt. Here you've got the Nile Delta. Egypt is over here. So here she is in Hebron over here. She is now saying, I've got to get out of here. I've got to run away. I'm going to go back home. Will you note what lies between where she is and where she's wanting to be? Will you notice this? The desert, the Negev desert, the wilderness. Just when I saw that, I just thought to myself, how often it is the case. <sighs> Sometimes the way back home is through the wilderness. Those of you, some of you will know what I, what I mean. Often the way back home is through the wilderness. Anyway, so she is making her way through the wilderness, back home. That's her plan. This is the solution for my problem. This is the plan I've come up with, and she is making her way through the wilderness, and she comes to an oasis, a spring of water, a place of life in this wilderness. 
and she encounters a messenger of God. Before I get to that, here's a story for you. Uh, when I read this, um, can I just tell you, so as I was reading and preparing this, I was in tears preparing the story. This is such an emotional story. It's such a powerful story. And my prayer has been all week, and as we've been worshiping, that God's Spirit will speak to you. And we're going to, it'll make sense to you just now. But here's a side story for you, first of all. We, so in my uh, training as a field guard, living in the wilderness, uh, on my sabbatical, um, and we were hiking in the wilderness all day. We'd been hiking about 17 kilometers at this stage. It was about 40 degrees. It was hot, and there's no water anywhere. And we came upon this spring, this oasis in the wilderness. And so uh, you must understand, so we get to this point. We are weary. We are tired. We are vulnerable. We are ready to just take our shoes off, to sit down, and just relax and rest. Uh, but unbeknownst to us, there were other creatures at this spring as well. They hid themselves very well. And so, in fact, they lay in wait for us, an ambush in the wilderness. And so we did not realize this, only later heard some noise sneaking up right behind us, turned around, and uh, this is what, and grabbed my phone and quickly took a bit of video for you. What other creatures at this as well. They hid themselves very well and ambush in the wilderness. And so we did not realize this. Okay, so Only I, I, I heard some, some issue with the sound there. Okay, so what we have there is two hyenas, in case you can't see at the back. And so they were hiding at the oasis, at the spring, these two hyenas. And what they were actually busy doing is they were busy sneaking up um, and they were busy sneaking up on us because you can see they were coming right close. They were there. They were hiding there in those old trees there. And they were trying to get closer. And then somebody said, uh, Paul, um, just look behind you. And I looked and they were trying to get closer. But the minute they saw that I saw them, uh, they, they snuck off. And so that was a scary moment. And here's my thought about it. Beware the ambush in the wilderness. You see, my friends, because in the wilderness... We are weary. We are vulnerable. And so often when we find ourselves in wilderness experiences, we can be ambushed. I think as Hagar was to some extent, she was tempted in this wilderness experience to come up with her own plan and her own solution and do something irrational and something silly by going pregnant, walking 300 kilometers through a wilderness. Jesus was tempted. Where was he? In the wilderness. Because our enemy knows that in the wilderness, we are weak, we are weary, we are vulnerable, and he will often come to us and try and ambush us in moments of wilderness. Be aware of that, where you might be tempted to just take a little moral shortcut here and there. Maybe do something you wouldn't usually do. Make a decision that perhaps is not God's right will for you at this time. Beware the ambush in the wilderness. And that's why the lessons from Joseph is so valuable for us in the wilderness, where part of what we learned from Joseph is that always in the wilderness, just do, ask for God's grace to just do the next right thing. You see, because at this encounter, when the messenger of the Lord came to her at the well, there was temptation to fix this thing herself, and she was given a message by the God's messenger, and right there when she got that message, we're going to look at it now, there must have been temptation to not do the next right thing. And instead to follow her own gut and her own plan and her own ideas. But we learned from her as well, she did the next right thing, and she lived in obedience. Temptation often 
to not live right and not do right and to abandon God's will for us comes to us in seasons of wilderness when we are vulnerable. Beware the ambush in the wilderness. Okay, so here they come, and she is now at this oasis. We find this part of the story in verses 7 to 10. Let me read it for us. So understand, here she is. She is desperate. Not a good situation. No way out. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road of Shur. And <clears throat> he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai. You can preach a sermon just on this line. Where have you come from and where are you going? What a question. Where are you from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her. Oh. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. I want you to notice a couple of things. The first thing I want you to notice in this moment of wilderness for Hagar. I pray that you'll hear this. She was, or at least felt like, nothing, nobody, an outcast, a slave, unimportant. And nobody in the middle, literally you saw the map, of nowhere. And yet God knew exactly where to find her. God knew exactly where she was. God knew exactly where to find her. I just want to say to you, you might feel like a nobody in the middle of nowhere. God knows where to find you. I find it so beautiful that here she is in the desert at some arbitrary little bit of water and, she is, and her life is falling apart and God meets her there. He knows where she is. He knows. He knows the way to find her. I find that so beautiful. So amazing. And, 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 and so the thing is, so what happens now is God comes to her and he knows where to find her. And, and, and I pray that you will hear that for yourself, that God knows where you are, that God knows where to find you, even if you feel like nobody in the middle of nowhere. We are meant to think at this point, again for you Bible students, at this point you are meant to think of the words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, where he tells the beautiful story about the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the one. You are also meant to think at this point about that wonderful story in John's Gospel, where Jesus meets this foreigner, this foreign outcast lady at a spring, the Samaritan lady. You're meant to make those connections as New Testament believers. The second thing I want you to notice, so not only does God know where to find her, but the second thing you're meant to notice here is in the story is, so the angel of the Lord comes to her, with a message from God. And it's not, 
it's not at all what she wanted to hear. It's not at all what she expected. She expected maybe something along the lines, okay, God is going to change Sarah and Abram's heart. He's going to soften them. And so you're going to go back, and they're going to stand there. They've got the fattened calf ready for you. They're going to stand there with open arms. They're going to welcome you, and you're going to be one happy family. That's what she expected here. That's what we want. That's what we wanted the angel to tell her, right? All of us, come on, be honest. That's what we wanted. If we were writing the story, that's how it would have gone. God comes with a message she didn't want to hear. Often in seasons of wilderness, God doesn't come and just magically fix everything. I don't know about you, but I found in, as I reflect upon my seasons of wilderness, is that God often comes and He doesn't fix the situation. He fixes me. He doesn't change the situation. He changes me. And He works on me. But what there always is, and here we find it again, and the messenger of God added, he will have descendants so many you can't count them. You will always find in these seasons, even though God doesn't necessarily always, he can and sometimes he does, but he doesn't always come and fix a situation. It changes that, but he changes me. But what you will always find is a promise that the future will be better than the present. That you will always find. This promise of the future being better than the present. So she goes back, but before she does, she does something fascinating, which is the, this is the first time in the Bible that this has happened. This has not happened before. This is the first time. It is something so huge. So what happens is she names God. What? You must understand what's going on here. Because up until this point, people don't name God in the Old Testament. God gives his name to people. You know that. You've read those stories, right? But here, this foreigner, this nobody, this nothing, this slave girl, she names God. And she names him El Roy. Let's read it. Verses 13 14. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her at this oasis. And it says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And she gives God this name, El Roy. El is kind of the generic name for God in the Old Testament. El God. Roy means who sees. And she gives God this name, the one who sees me. I find it so massively significant because often in seasons of wilderness, we feel invisible. We feel unseen. She comes to this, and this is part of this lesson from Hagar, is in seasons of wilderness, God sees. He sees you. He knows where to find you. Elroy, the God who sees, she names him. Isn't it beautiful? The God who sees. It gets better. Wait. So she goes back. She has this child. She names him Ishmael. Ishmael. You recognize the word El? El means what? God, Ishma means who hears. The God who sees and the God who hears. 
What a place to come to when you're in the wilderness and you've been cast aside. What a lesson to learn. That was her takeaway from that moment at the well, that moment in the wilderness, that moment at the oasis, at the spring. Her takeaway was God sees and God hears. So she calls him Ishmael. And um, then what happens in the story, uh, so God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, okay, surprise, um, you're about 100 years old now, and now is a perfect time for you to have kids. And so they have a child, and they name him Isaac. You know what Isaac means, right? Laughter, which is probably exactly what they did when God came to them at 100 years of age saying, listen, you're going to have your first kid now. They must have burst into laughter, and maybe that's where the name laughter Isaac comes from. That's my, that's my take on the story. And so they named their son Isaac. What does this mean for Ishmael? What does this mean for Hagar? because what happens is so the boys are playing and Ishmael laughs as they're playing laughs at Isaac Sarah sees this and she is livid and she goes to her husband Abraham in verses 13, 14 uh, sorry uh, 21 verse 10 and she says to Abraham get rid of that slave woman and her son for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And so we have this moment. Can you put yourself in their shoes? And this has been depicted in art so many times, that moment where she goes to her husband and says, get rid of this woman and her son. And so Ishmael's story becomes the story of a child that's not wanted. Becomes the story of a child which is now a complication. A child that is now ruining my life and is now a complication in my life, and so you're no longer wanted. And some of you seated here today know a little bit about that story. Some of you know about what it means to be that second child, that stepchild. who is now a complication in this family story that we are building. You see, and Hagar's story becomes a story of the wife that's no longer needed or wanted. And so we read the story, and she and her son get sent away with nothing more than a skin of water and a bread. And so they step into this wilderness of rejection. A complication, you have been replaced. You're no longer wanted or needed. And so they sent away with a bit of water and a bit of bread. And some of you know this story. Really? Is this the child support that we are getting? Is this the alimony? Are you sending us away? For you have now replaced us and you're sending us into the wilderness and this is meant to sustain us? Some of you know a little bit about this story, about this wilderness of rejection and having been replaced and not wanted 
And there is no pain greater than the pain of knowing you're not wanted. Rejected. There is no more devastating pain than that. And it disforms and it disfigures us as we go through life with that pain. It warps our understanding of relationships and how we interact with others. It changes us. The story of Hagar teaches us about Elroy. And some of you need to hear this today. The God who sees and the God who hears. And it will always give you the promise, even though maybe the situation won't be fixed right now, but the promise that the future will be better than the present. The story doesn't end there. So what happens is now they sent away with very little thanks. See you later. And the door shut. Verse 15 and 20, we read. And what happens is those five verses reinforce everything that's happened before. And we learn the lessons of Hagar and the lessons of wilderness. And as we read this, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat about a bow shot away. For she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And so here again, we see this thing. She's in the wilderness. Again, she thinks and feels like she is alone in the wilderness. No one is with me. Where is God? I can't hear him. I can't see him. I'm alone here. But what happens the next verse? God hears the Ishmael. God hears the boy cry. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to him, What's the matter, Hagar? Once again, God knows exactly where to find her. Under a random bush in the wilderness, God knows exactly where she is. She is not lost. She's not alone. What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. Doesn't that wilderness do that so often for us? Wilderness opens our eyes and we see things we have not seen before. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. <laughs> they said, well of water again. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up. And so we have the same thing repeating in the wilderness. I think I'm alone, but I'm not alone. God is right in, there in the midst with me. God understands. God knows where to find me. And those themes of God sees the boy. God sees Hagar, Elroy, the God who sees. And he hears the cry, Ishmael, the God who not only sees, but the God who hears. And then God comes. He doesn't fix the situation necessarily in a way that is dramatically going to change it. But he guides her to the next well. He gives her exactly what she needs for that moment, for that season in her life, for that day, for that week. 
And that's often how God works with us in our seasons of wilderness. He gives us, he guides us to the next well. And for us as New Testament believers, that's Jesus. May God guide you to the next well. May you know as you sit here perhaps today and you know the story of rejection and being a complication to others and a sense of not wanted or being cast aside. Today God wants you to hear that he sees. He hears your cries. And he's ready if you will allow him to, to guide you to the next well. May God guide you to Jesus. May he be your life-giving water. Let us pray. God, so often in the wilderness, we feel like you are not, we are not heard and we are not seen. Where is God? He's not seeing my situation. Where is God? He's not listening to my prayers. The story of Hagar reminds us today. May we be reminded of this, each and every one of us, that you are the God who sees and the God who hears. May we be reminded that you are a searching and a seeking God, and you know exactly where to find us. Lord, I want to pray for those here today who have suffered the wilderness of rejection who have suffered or perhaps who are suffering the wilderness. Of feeling that they are not enough. They're not wanted. Or they've been replaced by something better, something newer. That, Lord, is a crippling wilderness to be in. And many here today have lived with that pain of that wilderness for a long time. See them, Lord. Hear them. And guide them to the well. Thank you for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.